there is this beautiful missionary aspect of Christmas that Christ is coming to restore humanity, to bring them back. And He's coming, brothers and sisters, has inaugurated the new creation. Sadly, so many Christians, they're hoping, they keep, oh, the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus comes back again, amen. And, but we make so little of the first coming of Christ. With the first coming of Christ, the new creation has been inaugurated. We will not be seated. We are seated with Christ. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are no longer a slave of sin. You are a slave of righteousness. It's all present tense. Sadly, we have embraced this idea that only when Jesus comes back and people live miserably in their sins, forgetting that the new creation has been inaugurated in Christ Jesus. The King came, the last days are taking place now. And yes, we long for the consummation, but the inauguration is as beautiful as the consummation. And the saints of the Old Testament, they're longing, they're longing for the first coming, the coming of Christ. Genesis 49, so please, we're going to step away from Titus this morning, go to Genesis 49, and if you can, I want to invite you to stand. And as Joseph said earlier, when the Word of God speaks, it's, it's God speaking, God is present in His Word, and that's why we stand up, just like when you go to the court and the judge steps into the courtroom, we are commanded to do what? Yeah, as a sign of respect, and the king is coming to speak to us. So, Genesis 49, we're going to look at verses 8 through 12. But first, let us get verse 1 there. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together, that I might tell you what shall happen to you in the last days, or the days to come. Verse 8, Judah... Your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff. From between his feet, until tribute comes to him. And to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darkened than wine and his teeth whiter than milk. You may be seated. May the Lord. Be gracious and bless the reading and preaching of His Word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be pleasing in His sight. Amen. Tomorrow, many of us will be celebrating Christmas. And it's a wonderful time for Christians just to stop and, and think about the incarnation, the birth of our Savior. The necessity of God becoming man to save us. Often when we come to the Christmas season, the major biblical texts that come to our mind and that we read are usually in Matthew chapter 2, uh, in Luke, the beginning of Luke's account, 
right? That's where we always go for the, the Christmas text. And, and often also Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7, the, the coming of the, the, the one for, from the virgin one. Isaiah chapter 9, the, the coming of the son was given to us. But sadly, sometimes we think that Christmas is stopped right there with Matthew, Luke, and Isaiah. And we forget that Christmas got to go back, all the way back to Genesis. And we could say that even prior to Genesis, in eternity, God had already established and ordained the coming of the Messiah. But I think it's important going as, as we have the revelation of God... Going back to Genesis, we could, back, we could go back to Genesis chapter 3, Genesis chapter 1, knowing that since the creation, creation had a telos, creation had a goal, creation had a, a culmination, and since the beginning was Jesus Christ. Christ is not a surprise. It's through Him and by Him that everything was created and for His glory. But then we know it's the fall, things become very clear. In Genesis chapter 3, God announces the the Savior will come from the seed of the woman. One who will undo what Adam did. Reversing the fall. So we could go to Genesis 3, but I chose a different text. I chose Genesis 49. And Genesis 49, 8 through 12 is actually a development of Genesis chapter 3. So Moses is developing what was written earlier in Genesis chapter 3. So the message of Christmas this morning comes from Genesis chapter 49, verses 8 through 12. Here's the outline of what we're going to be looking at this morning. So first we're going to be looking at verse 8 of chapter 9, of 49, the praise and conquest of the king. Then verse 9, who shall raise the lion? Then the universal reign of the lion, verse 10. And then the paradoxical, the paradoxical conquest of the lion, verses 11 through 12. So, we have a lot to cover here, but before we get to the text, uh, it's always hard when you suddenly parachute into a book of the, book, the Bible. So, we have been walking through Titus, so we know the context of Titus, we know what's going on, but every time you have a, a, a different message like that, it's weird coming to this book, you have no idea what's going on, what's happening in Genesis. So, I just want to give you maybe five minutes of introduction to the book of Genesis, so we know the context of the text that we're going to be walking through. The book of Genesis, uh, broadly dividing it, has two major portions, two major parts. So we have Genesis 1 through 11, and that's, we could call the pre-patriarchal narrative, or the universal narrative, or the primeval narrative. And that's where it's dealing with humanity in general. Chapters 1 through 11. That's dealing with humanity in general. And basically what we see from Genesis 1 through 11 is humanity descending from the mountain of God. Descending from, the, from Eden, the mountain where they were dwelling with God. And taking an exile journey eastward. So that's what we see taking place from Genesis 1 through 11. Mankind in exile from God's presence and taking an eastward journey culminating with chapter 11 and the Tower of Babel, and all the nations dispersed under God's judgment. And then comes Genesis 12 through 50, that's the, and now we are covering the patriarchal narrative. And that's, you have the life of Abraham, Jacob, 
Judah, Joseph. So we start getting to the patriarchal narrative. And the calling of Abraham, that's, that's what is important. Sometimes we, the problem with this division is that we start thinking that they are not connected. No. Genesis 49 is deeply connected with Genesis 1 through 11. The nations were dispersed. The nations are under God's judgment, under God's curse. God calls Abraham out of the nations to be what? To be a blessing to the nations that were dispersed. So Abraham is called by God to be a blessing to the nations of chapter 1 through 11. They were dispersed. So the patriarchs, they are deeply connected with the rescue of humanity. The Bible does not start with the nation of Israel. The Bible starts with the nations, humanity in general. And the call of Abraham is... So that's why it's so fascinating. As you get the, the call of Abraham, the life of Abraham, we always go to Genesis 12, but actually Abraham is presented to us in, in chapter 11, in the genealogy. And the genealogy is taking Abraham all the way back to Noah. And then you read the genealogy of Noah. Noah is traced all the way back to Shem, to Seth. And Seth is all the way back to whom? Adam. So you have Adam, Seth, you have Noah, you have Abraham. So that's important. Because Judah is a son of Jacob, who is a son of whom? Leading to Abraham. Right? Perfect. Yes. So you see, they're all connected. It's all connect, going back to the first chapter. So it's very vital for us to know what's taking place here. And inside these two major divisions, you have ten subdivisions. And there's a key word throughout Genesis, and that's the Hebrew word toledot. Or translated as genealogy, or the generations of. And this is a way that Moses is doing to keep tracing things all the way back to the beginning. And especially tracing all the descendants back to the promise that a man would come from the woman. So all these genealogies that we have throughout Genesis is a way of Moses saying, God is preserving his promise that through the seed of the woman, the Messiah will come. The genealogies in the Bible, especially you have in the Old Testament, uh, you think about... There are two major books full of genealogies. It's Genesis and Chronicles. I don't know if you remember, there was a long time when I preached that series from creation to new creation. And I was talking about the structure of the Bible, and especially the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh. How the Hebrew Bible and the Bible of Jesus, the Hebrew Bible, it starts with Genesis, ends with Chronicles. Chronicles is the last book of the Hebrew Bible. Connecting Genesis and Chronicles together. And Chronicles begins with genealogies. Why? Taking us all the way back to Genesis and the promise that the, the, the king will come. The king from the line of David will come. So as we come to Genesis 49, so here the, the structure of the Toledo, the generations. So you see, we are in Genesis 49. So that's the generations of Jacob. That's where we are dealing with. Another important aspect of Genesis 49 is that it, you can look in your Bibles and you see the whole chapter 49 is a different type of literature. It's poetry, right? Can you see in your Bibles? It's poetry. 
And what Moses does, it's very important. There are four major sections of poetry in the Torah, in the first five books. Remember that Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, they form one book. They're one major book. The New Testament doesn't say the book of Genesis. It's the book of Moses. The New Testament doesn't say the book of Leviticus. It's the book of Moses, the Torah. It's one major book. And these four major poetry sections, uh, Seoheimer says that these are the, the themes that, that holds together the whole Pentateuch. You have four major sections of poetry. It's Genesis 49, Exodus 15, Numbers 23 and 24, and then Deuteronomy 32 through 33. And what is important about this poetry, poetical sections here in the Pentateuch, so you have narrative poetry, narrative poetry, narrative poetry. These scenes that are holding the story together, all this, po this poetry is primarily related to the coming of the Messiah. Is Moses speaking that the Messiah will come to restore all things. He will return. And it's interesting that Genesis 49, Numbers 23 and 24, and Deuteronomy 32 and 33 begins exactly the same. Speaking about the last days, what will take place in the last days. Uh, one final observation about this, this text here is how it, it can look chaotic, this picture here. But it's just actually showing how Genesis 49 is being developed from previous parts of Genesis and will be expanded until Revelation. So Genesis 49, some scholars will say that Genesis 49, especially verses 8 through 12, is one of the most important portions of the Bible. The only reason why David is so amazing, and King David, and Jesus calls himself the, the son of David, is going back to Genesis 49, verses 8 through 12, that the king will come from the line of Judah. So it, it is developed up until Revelation. So you can see how the, the beauty of the, the, the scriptures, how it's all together by one major author, that is the Lord. And look at me, with me to verse 1. That's the context that we have. Genesis 49, verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons. Jacob is about to die. He's, that, that's his last words. That's the testament of Jacob. He's coming to pronounce the blessings upon his sons. Uh, and we know that he's pronouncing blessings because towards the end of Chapter 49, verse 28 says, And all these are the twelve tribes of Israel. This is what their father said to them as he blessed them, blessing each with the blessing suitable to him. Three times he used the word blessing. Verse 28 of chapter 49, implying that Jacob is blessing his sons now with the greater... Genesis is a book of blessing, and the greatest blessing that... Jacob is proclaiming over his sons is the blessing that God will come to restore all things through the Messiah. But it's important that he says, look at verse 1 again. Then Jacob called his sons and said to, to them, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you when? Days to come? Any other version? Last days? Yes. Latter days, it's a, I prefer the King James and the Legacy Standard when they say in the last days. 
I think it is a, a, best, a better translation of the word, the, the, the Hebrew expression here. As I said earlier, this expression, last days, appears three times in the Torah, in the first five books. Seoheimer, he helps us understand. He says, the same expression in the last days happens in the Pentateuch, or the Torah, as an introduction to two other poetic discourses, the oracles of Balaam and the last words of Moses. On all three occasions, Jacob, Balaam, Moses, the subject matter introduced by the phrase in the days to come or in the last days is that of God's future deliverance of his chosen people. At the center of that deliverance stands a king. In Genesis 49, that king is connected with the house of the Judah. On all three occasions, the subject matter introduced by the phrase in the days to come or in the last days is that of God's future deliverance of his chosen people. So there, there it is. Keep that in mind. When Jacob says, here's what's to take place in the last days. He's talking about a future, a time very, very distant from where he's at. And by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he's seeing the coming of this king who will conquer the enemy and deliver them. So when you come to the New Testament, that's important here, as you come to the New Testament, the New Testament uses the word in the last days. And the predominantly way that the New Testament used the word last days is for what? The future or the present? The present. The last days are already taking place with the coming of Jesus. So you read the New Testament and they are saying, and that's what's supposed to happen in the last days. It's happening right now. Bill says, in the New Testament, the end days predicted by the Old Testament are seen as beginning to be fulfilled with Christ's first coming. This means that the Old Testament prophecies of God's deliverance of Israel from oppressors, God's rule over the Gentiles, and the establishment of His kingdom have been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, and His coming or birth, and the formation of the church. Therefore, the latter days, the last days, do not take place only at some point in the future, but is taking place throughout the whole church age, right up to the present. That's very important to see what Jacob is speaking here, according to the full revelation of the Bible, has been inaugurated with Jesus coming. Amen? So with that in mind, let's go to verse 8, Genesis 49, verse 8. So Judah is the object of the Father's blessing here, and he probably is very scared. It says, Judah, and if you read the, the three previous brothers... You can only imagine what Judah is feeling right now. Because the first three sons, they do not receive a blessing, but they receive what? A curse. Reuben, look at verse 3. You are my firstborn, my might, and the first fruit of my strength. Preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. And you can only imagine Reuben feeling all good about himself. Yes, dad, I know, it's me. And then the dad says, unstable as water. You shall not have preeminence. Because you went up to your father's bed and you defiled it. 
And then he curses him. <gasps> and then the same thing happens with Simeon. Simeon and Levi, they're cursed. So you can only imagine Judah. Now he's coming. Dad is in bed. All the sons there. And now he comes to Judah. And if I was Judah, I would say, I need to go to the bathroom right now. I need to do something else. Because it doesn't seem like good things are going to come. Especially if you know who Judah is. If you know about Judah. You know the things are not sounding very happy on his side. Who is Judah? One of the most important stories about Judah that we, we know in Genesis is Genesis 38. It's right after the beginning of the, the, the jo Joseph narrative. Joseph is starting in chapter 37. And then you have chapter 38 of Genesis. That nasty story. You guys can go home and read that story in Genesis 38. Nasty. Judah is nasty. He's very inappropriate with his daughter-in-law. He's a filthy man. Do you remember that story? Genesis 38? And then he tells the Tamar, his daughter-in-law, should be put to death. Until... She shows that she's pregnant also with his son. And as he's humiliated, remember she shows the staff that belongs to Judah. It's his idea. I have his wallet with me. And in the midst of that humiliation, Judah is being humiliated. He humbles himself and he says, actually, she's right, I'm wrong. And that's the beginning of Judah's repentance. He does not try to justify. He recognizes, he recognizes his sin. And he says that Judah never knew his daughter-in-law again. Meaning, he departed from having a sinful relationship with her. And from that time on, you start seeing a change in Judah's life. In, Ju in Genesis 44, 33... Judah becomes the first man in the Bible to offer himself to die in the place of another. And he offers himself to die in the place of his brother. That's how much he has changed. And that starts to help us see why the Messiah will come from the line of Judah. He is the first man who willingly offers himself to die on the place of his brothers. It's Judah. A completely changed man. Judah, who points us to the life of the tribe of Judah, is a greater reminder that Christmas, the birth and arrival of Jesus, is a time to celebrate the grace, mercy, and power of God in transforming those enslaved to sin to be slaves of righteousness. Judah is transformed. He's changed. And that's why his father never brings up his past sins. Because there was repentance in his life. So, we are told, Judah... And there is a play with the words here. Yehuda, the name Judah. The verb yada, meaning to give thanks, to praise. Leah was his mom. And Leah, remember when she names him, it's 
Leo's struggling, suffering a lot, and she names him Judah. Meaning she's free from being enslaved to the desire to be loved by her husband. She was enslaved to be loved by her husband. And finally she realized that God is her portion. And this baby, oh this baby, may all praise Him, praise the Lord. Kenneth Matthews, he says, In naming her fourth child, Leah departs from her obsession with winning the love of Jacob. Rather, she exalts the Lord at the birth of Judah. I will praise. Leads to the name Judah. Meaning, he will be praised. Perhaps it's a shortened form of a name, meaning, may Yahweh or El be praised. May God be praised. The phrase, I will praise or I will give thanks, appear often in the Psalter, in the Psalms, always directed to Yahweh. So it's a beautiful thing as Jacob, under God's guidance, picks up Judah. Judah, you shall be praised by your brothers. Judah, you are, and your brother shall praise you. The words used to praise, it's most frequently used to praising God for His works of salvation. And what Moses is telling us here through this story is this, this from the line of Judah, He will be praised by men for salvation. And we know that the only one who can be praised for salvation is God Himself. Therefore, this Son here, He will be something beyond just human. And that's something that the Bible will develop later as the other authors come to show us. So he says, Judah, you are, and your brother shall praise you. And here's the reason why they will be praising Judah. Because your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. The reason why Judah, this descendant of Judah, this Judah of the last days will be praised is because of the conquest. Victory. And notice that the Messiah... He has enemies. Jesus has enemies. People think that Jesus has no enemies. He's just so loving that he has no enemies. Actually, because he's the embodiment of love, he has enemies. Going back to Genesis 3.15, the enmity. The, there was an enemy, the serpent. And says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And the hand on the neck is a symbol of conquest. So, for example, in the book of Joshua, we see Joshua and getting the, the leaders of the people, and they have their feet on the neck. And the neck is connected to what? The head. And the promise is to crush the head. So, the neck and the head are inseparable there. And then he says, your father's sons, look at that, your father's sons shall bow down before you. So, the promise is that all the sons of the father... We will bow down before this great son and king from the line of Judah. So verse 8 describes the exaltation of the king from the line of Judah. His victory over the enemies. The hand on the neck leads to the shouts of praises and adoration. But if you know anything about Genesis, and especially the context here, when he says... Your father's son shall bow down before you. Do you remember who had a dream? 
where his brothers were bowing down to him? Who was that? Joseph. Joseph. And that's important because Joseph and Judah, they are the main characters in this block of chapter 37 to chapter 50 of Genesis. We could call a tale of two brothers. And the language that's going to be used here to describe Judah is very similar to the language used to describe Joseph throughout this narrative. So what many scholars believe, and I agree, is that Joseph is a type of his descendant of the line of Judah, who will rule the, who will rule the world. So Joseph is a narrative prefiguration of Judah's seed. Joseph is a type of this king who is to come from the line of Judah. The Judah king will be something like Joseph, as a world savior and ruler. So the story of Joseph, the ruler and savior, becomes a picture of the expected king of the line of Judah. So if you did, and I agree that the story of Joseph helps us to understand this, the, 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 this future king, Joseph had enemies. Who were Joseph's primary enemies? His brothers. And when Jesus comes, his primary suffering is from the Jews themselves. So, there are many parallels, and I don't have time to go through, but we are going as we walk through. So, what we can say is that Joseph goes through a type of suffering, death, and resurrection leading to power and kingship. And the same will take place with this one who comes from Judah. The lion of the tribe of Judah will be Joseph Redivivus, revived again. Or the Joseph of the last days. So, and he says, your, your father's son shall bow down before you. He helps us see that this one here is going to be greater than Joseph. Yes, they came and bowed down to Joseph, but this one who is coming is going to be even greater than Joseph. And then he says, moving to verse 9, Judah is a lion's club. And then he comes with the, the picture of a lion. And here is the, the background why Jesus is called the lion of the tribe of Judah. Why is Jesus called the lion of the tribe of Judah? You've got to go back to Genesis 49. So they see Revelation chapter 5, all the way back to Genesis 49. The lion was a symbol of kingship, power in the ancient Near East. Kings were pictured as lions. Do you remember Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 10? He had lions. Pictures of lions, images of lions all over his throne. And his armrest were lions, drawings of lions, symbolizing the royalty, the power. And as you look at the, the brothers here, you see that Ishakar is compared to a donkey, verse 14. Dan is compared to a serpent, verse 17. Naphtali to a deer, and Benjamin to a wolf. But the Messiah from the line of Judah, he's the lion, ruling all the other animals. So he says, from the prey, from the prey, my son, you have gone up. The word prey implies a violent death. Most people think that the lion here is eating his prey, but let's see how it is used, this word. The same word here, but the verb form 
is used in Genesis 37, verse 33. And that's when Jacob sees the garments of Joseph. Do you remember the brothers bring the garment of Joseph? And Jacob sees, and he says, that's my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt a prey. Meaning Joseph became a prey. And Joseph was a prey of his brothers. He was devoured like a prey by his brothers. He, he went through a type of death. And the same thing will take place with the line of Judah. With this king from the line of Judah. He also will become a prey. Yes, he's the lion. But he will die as a prey. A violent death. So from the prey, from the violent death, the king of Judah goes up. It says... He, stood down, he stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? Many scholars look at this, and they, and they see a picture of just the lion laying down with the prey and devouring. And it's who, who, who dares to awake this lion who is so ferocious? But I think that there is a different take here. The picture is of the lion now on the ground. The lion we, we always picture as standing, right? Now this lion is actually on the ground. And the whole context of the Bible helps us see that the sinking down, the stooping down of the lion is actually the lion's sleep of death. The lion dies. That's why Jacob describes the mighty lion descending and then ascending. The same language of... Stooping down, laying down, is used in, in, in Judges chapter 5. Interesting, that's the song of Deborah. Remember, Jael, she crushed the head of Sisera. Look at the, the, the head crushing pattern in the scriptures. She crushes the head of Sisera. And then we have the song, it says, Between her feet he sank, he fell, he laid still. Between her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank, there he fell. Implying the death. The, this laying, this uh, lying down, this stooping down is a picture of death. And the picture is of the king of Judah. is one who is a mighty lion who died and he died a violent death. And that's the paradox that the Bible has. That victory comes through pain and death. Victory comes through suffering. That's why Jesus can say that Moses spoke of him. Because he can go back to this text and say, it was being proclaimed back then. And the ESV uh, has, who dares rouse him? The, the problem is that the Hebrew structure is very simple. The, the Hebrew sentence is, who shall raise him? There is no dare here. It's not like, in the Hebrew there is no, who dares to. And there is a difference between... Rousing someone and raising someone. The raising is because this one is dead. And I believe that's the picture here. Going back to the parallel with Joseph. You remember that Joseph has that dream. The sheaf. Do you remember the sheaves? And his sheaf is what? Raised above the other ones. Same, same Hebrew word to be raised. And who raised Joseph's sheaf above the other ones? 
God. So who will raise this one? God himself will raise him. Joseph was down as in a death, was raised. And the same will happen to this lion here. Thus the answer to, the, to who might raise this fallen lion up is the same one who raised Joseph, the Lord God. So, Kevin Shen, he says, Thus the climax of the descent and ascent theme in Genesis 37 through 50 is not Joseph's becoming Pharaoh, Pharaoh's second in command, but it is the eschatological projection, the resurrection of the Messiah. He will go up from the prey because God will raise him from death. Going back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 15, because the Messiah, the seed of the woman, he would be crushed by the serpent in the hills. And by being crushed, he would crush the serpent. This paradox of victory through death, victory through pain. Same thing we see right here. And notice that it says, from the prey, my son. Remember that Jacob is looking to the last days. Jacob will be dead. That's not Jacob. This is the son of God. That's why in Jesus' baptism, the son of David from the line of Judah, in his baptism, as God is coronating the king for his ministry, this is my son, my beloved one. Listen to him. And that is the son from Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. Let's move to verse 10. Verse 10, the universal rule and reign of this lion. And it says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And the scepter and the staff, or the rod, there are pictures of king, royalty. Kings use scepters and staffs in their hands. Uh, there is a, it was found, archaeologists found a, this beautiful picture of King Darius from Persia. And he's literally sitting down with a staff between his feet as the king. So the scepter is a symbol of regal power and authority. It's fascinating that the other poetic, the other poetic portion in Numbers 24, we read. Numbers 24, 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. Already, but not yet. I can see, but it's not yet here. A star shall come out of Jacob. And what? A scepter shall rise. The same Hebrew word. The scepter shall rise out of Israel. And now we know that's not just Israel in general, but it's from Judah in particular that this scepter will be raised from. Fascinating that Judah, who had been humiliated and exposed because he had left his staff with Tamar, now he sees another staff, but now it's the royal and regal staff in the hand of his seed. And then we have this very controversial, probably one of the most controversial uh, phrases in the book of Genesis. And it is, there are so many different translations. Uh, the ESV has, until tribute comes to, to him. You can see the different translations. Uh, the, the legacy or the NES has, until Shiloh. Shiloh comes, same with the King James. I honestly, studying, 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 I think the NIV has the best translation. 
It says, until he to whom it belongs shall come. Until he to whom it belongs shall come. And Ezekiel 21, verse 27, he used the same expression here. Ex talking about until he to whom it belongs shall come. So I'm not going to spend time here. I can send you my notes and you can walk through it. But what is important about this is the last part. And to him shall be the obedience of all the nations, all the peoples. This rule and this kingship is universal. It's not just Israel. All the nations will come and bow down and worship and praise this king from the line of Judah. And that's a reverse of the Tower of Babel. Babel will take place. Remember, they scattering the nations under judgment. And through this one, the nations will be blessed. Be restored. Instead of rebelling against God, you're going to be obedient to God. The disobedient nations will become the obedient nations under the rulership of King of Judah. Joseph was a type of this king. Do you remember the nations came to him and were blessed? But the only thing that Joseph could give to the nations was what? Grain. He could not provide forgiveness of sins. He could not provide deliverance from the true enemy. But this greater Joseph will come and he will have the obedience of the nations. They will be blessed by him. It's interesting that when Jesus... Before he ascends in Matthew 28, he commands all his disciples to go to where? To all the nations. And do what? Make disciples, teaching them to do, to obey all that I have commanded. Jesus is going back to Genesis 49. Here is the king of Judah, and I have acquired their forgiveness. And now you go and proclaim, and they will be obedient to my lordship. Uh, Time is flying, we need to move fast here. So let's go to uh, verses 11 and 12. I have verse 10 here, but it's 11 and 12. The paradoxical conquest of the lion, verses 11 and 12. And now you have this beautiful imagery of like a new creation thing, taking place. So he says, binding his foal to the vine and his donkey's coat to the choice vine and his donkey's coat to the uh, and he washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. And the, the picture is, like, what's going on here? And the picture that we have here is of a new creation with the king ruling over the beasts of the field. And especially the donkey. Zechariah is going to use this passage to speak about Jesus coming on a donkey. Because the donkey was a symbol of peace instead of the horse that was a symbol of war. And he's coming, and he has creation in abundance and prosperity as if the thorns of judgment have been removed. There's an abundance of vines, and, and the milk is produced. There's a restoration of Eden in the last days when this king comes. Abundance of vines, the abundance of wine is a symbol of prosperity, peace, fertility. <coughs> And then you have the donkey. Referred to Zechariah, then expanded in, in the Gospels as Jesus comes. And then he says that he, he has washed his garments in, the, in wine. 
and his vesture in the blood of grapes. So some scholars, uh, and they think that, they say that the prosperity here is so abundant. There's so much wine and so, so many vines that people don't even need water. They can wash their garments in wine instead of water. I think that if we let the, the, the context of Joseph help us interpret here, we're going to be reminded of something else. Joseph's garments was dipped, washed in the blood of an animal, picturing his death, a violent death. And I think that's what we have here. As we keep this picture of this greater Joseph coming, his garments will also be dipped in the blood of grapes. But that's not going to be the blood of a goat like Joseph. It will be his own blood. And you think about the garments. The garment represented the person. That's why when the brothers get a garment of Joseph and they, they dip in the blood, they're saying, that's what we want to be done to Joseph. That's what we, sh we had done to Joseph, killed him. And this lion of Judah, his garments that represent him will be soaked in his own blood. And that's the picture that we have in Revelation 19, 13. As Jesus comes dressed and in his garments, we have blood. And I believe that's his own blood. And of course, it's the blood of his enemies. It's a mixture of his own blood. And since it's through his death that he conquers, there is the mix of his enemies' bloods there too. And then his eyes are darker than wine. And I believe that's the picture of eyes darker and drunkenness is not a good one, right? But the picture here is that Jesus drank the whole cup of God's wrath. The whole cup was drank by him. That's why his eyes are dark. So, I agree with Kevin Shin. He says, Thus the meaning of Judah's blessing in Genesis 49 is significantly enriched by careful comparison to Joseph in the, in the Joseph narrative. Such an analysis reveals first and foremost that the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams of his brothers bowing down to him will be overshadowed in the last days by the Messiah who will rule both his Israelite brethren as well as the nations. And then he says, he will reconcile some of his enemies to himself, that's us, while defeating those who resist him to the end. Moreover, just as Joseph's dreams were fulfilled despite and through death, so the Messiah will die a violent death, but will be raised to life by God. Then his reign will be fully realized and will be characterized by peace and prosperity, reminiscent of Eden. That's the picture that we have. Isn't it fascinating when Jesus comes, the first miracle that John records, what was Jesus' first miracle as John records? Abundance of wine. Implying a new creation is taking place here. So as we bring towards an end this, this text here, it's fascinating how Genesis and Chronicles, the beginning and the end of the, the, the Hebrew Old Testament, all hoping for the coming of this Messiah. Genesis ends. Genesis begins with the first days, ends with the last days. And Genesis ends with God's people in exile. They are in Egypt, waiting for redemption. Chronicles, the last book of the Hebrew Bible, also full of genealogies, tracing the expectant king of the line of Judah, 
ends. Yes, the people have been released from captivity, but they're still in spiritual exile, waiting for the true king from the line of David to come. What is the first book of the New Testament? Matthew? How does Matthew open? A genealogy. Why? Tracing us back to Chronicles, the last book of the Old Testament, being this perfect bridge, taking us all the way back to Genesis. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the son of Abraham, the son of David. All the way back to Judah. That's the line that Matthew is tracing. So the healings, the miracles, the casting out of demons, his death and resurrection is a picture of what Jacob said. You will be praised because your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. And the casting off demons, the healings, the, the raising people from death, his own life, death and resurrection is how Jesus conquers Satan. That's how he crushes the serpent's head. And that's important. Balaam, in that prophecy, in Numbers 24, 14, he speaks of this Messiah coming and crushing the serpent's head. And then the, expect, the expectation was, is that David? Because David comes and he puts his hands on the neck of Goliath, the gigantic snake. The picture of Goliath is of a snake. He has scales. He's this beast, this monster. And what does David do, do to his head? He chops his head, crushes his head. Is that David? And we know that, no, it's not David. David doesn't conquer sin. Sin conquers David. He dies. He's unable to set people free. Solomon, the king of peace, prosperity. Sin conquers Solomon. That's why that phrase is so important. Until he to whom the scepter truly belongs, come. And that's why the New Testament shows that Jesus came. His birth, His incarnation is the fulfillment. The scepter is in His hands. In Revelation chapter 5, we read earlier today, Revelation chapter 5. Remember, John is weeping. John is weeping. He sees no one to open the scroll. And in the scroll, we have God's plan to rescue His people. <coughs> Judge evil. Bring his new creation. And as John is weeping, the angel says what? Weep no more. Why? Behold whom? The lion of the tribe of Judah. He has come. He has inaugurated the last days. He's seated on the throne. And John looks and he sees what? A lamb. The lion who was supposed to die. The sacrifice. And then we continue reading in Revelation. And we read that, uh, yes, the scepter is in his hands. Revelation 12, 5. She gave birth to a male child, the community of God's people. One who is to rule all the nations with a scepter, with a staff of iron. And her child was cut up to God, raised to his throne. And there he remains, ruling the nations, ruling the universe. 
And the beautiful thing is, all we who are Gentiles were saved by this King, and we are brought into the obedience, the obedience of the nations come, and I'll submit to this King of the line of Judah. There is this beautiful missionary aspect of Christmas, that Christ is coming to restore humanity, to bring them back. And His coming, brothers and sisters, has inaugurated the new creation. Sadly, so many Christians, they're hoping, they keep, oh, the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus comes back again, amen. And, but we make so little of the first coming of Christ. While the New Testament make a big deal of the first coming of Christ. With the first coming of Christ, the new creation has been inaugurated. We will not be seated. We are seated with Christ. We are a new creation in Christ Jesus. You are no longer a slave of sin. You are a slave of righteousness. It's all present tense. But sadly, we have embraced this idea that only when Jesus comes back and people live miserably in their sins, forgetting that the new creation has been inaugurated in Christ Jesus. The King came. The last days are taking place now. And yes, we long for the consummation, but the inauguration is as beautiful as the consummation. And the saints of the Old Testament, they're longing, they're longing for the first coming. The coming of Christ. And we make so little of that. May we make no little of His first coming. And see how all these beautiful things have been inaugurated. And just look at your lives. How much the Lord has done. And how you are indeed a new creation in Christ Jesus. I know that Isaac Watts, when he wrote Joy to the World, he was thinking about the second coming. But I think he was wrong. He wrote a beautiful hymn, and you're going to sing the hymn, but we can apply to the first coming, because in his first coming, he inaugurated. He makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. And that's not for the future. That has been inaugurated with Christ, with his first coming. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is indeed a sharp sword that must pierce our hearts and change us. Help us. Help us to live in light of the truth that we are right now a new creation in Jesus Christ. The lion who went down as a prey was raised by your power and ascended the throne and he's reigning, he's ruling. And today's the day for nations to come and pay homage and be obedient to this king who is full of love, mercy, and grace. And Lord, please help us. Help us to live in light of the truth that we who are in Christ, we are a new creation. And let those who are not in Christ be found in Christ. Let them run to Jesus. To find salvation in Him alone. Thank you for your work of redemption. From Genesis. Or even prior to Genesis. For all eternity. We will praise you. That's what Christmas is all about. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. And we praise the last day Judahite king who came. Jesus Christ. We praise Him because He saved us. And He deserves all the worship. It's in His name that we pray. 
Amen. Amen. Amen.